Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine, episode number 14. My name's Nathan, and we're joined, as always, by co-host Corey down in the Lower Mainland. And today, we're bringing in a registered nurse to talk to you about the experiences she's had and the type of work she's doing currently. Her name is Kinnan Ross. So I'll, I'll ask you first, Corey, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm, I'm very good. Thanks. Uh, good to see you again. Welcome to Kinnan. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be yeah, here. It's, it, thank you. It, it's, it's, it's great for us to have different perspectives. We want to collect the stories of, of different healthcare professionals in different stages of the story. And, um, and with, and to show that there, there, there is another side to this. There is a way out of, out of the whole machine, as we call it. And, um, and that that can look like very different things to different people. And that the way we measure our, our successes is different. And what our career looks like on the other side can be very different too. And, and there are just, you know, there's different, different ways to do that. So, Kenan, if you, if you wouldn't mind bringing us up to speed, just give us a little bit about who you are, um, where you're from, your, your, and a bit of your journey of, of nursing first. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So um, I am a registered nurse. I am currently practicing in Alberta. Um, as, as I was saying, I'm working within some of the existing harm reduction programs at the Royal Alec Hospital in Edmonton, but um, my nursing journey really started in Vancouver. Um, I left Edmonton in 2005 and went to Vancouver. I had not yet gone to nursing school. Um, and I went to Langara College in Vancouver starting in 2009 um, after sort of just working jobs here and there in Vancouver. And, and I always wanted to go to nursing school, um, but I didn't really have the executive organization <laughs> to get it done until starting in 2009. So I went back to nursing school when I was 30 um, and graduated there in 2012 and then spent the last decade of my career at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, working in sort of numerous programs and roles there. I started out in medicine um, where I, you know, sort of toughed it out for the first couple of years. And um, then I went into a bedside position in the urban health program, which is a, a program that um, supports people who use drugs, who have active infections and is focused on um, infectious diseases, mainly HIV. So I did a lot of work there. Um, and with the changing sort of demographic of people who were contracting HIV, it became largely a program for people who were actively using drugs. Um, I then took a little jaunt into the world of critical care, which was actually like a massive escape mechanism for me. We'll talk more about that. Um, then I went to treatment. And then I went back into the urban health program um, where I worked in a primary care clinic for people with HIV called the John Rudy Clinic. And then I eventually went back to the unit, the inpatient unit, where I was the clinical nurse leader um, for the urban health program until this past September um, when I came back to Edmonton. So I've mostly been in medicine programs that sort of cater to or support people who are using drugs um, with lots of harm reduction initiatives with built into them. Um, and yeah, it's always sort of been, it's interesting as somebody who, you know, 
got really sort of, um, I hate saying rock bottom because it's just not my thing. Um, There's no, no such thing. <laughs> it's just so silly, right? Yeah, like it's my bottom was not a bottom by any no, means. And no. it, you know, it was actually just like a crisis is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting as, as somebody who has always had substance use involvement that I was so drawn to working with people who use drugs. I, I mean, it's not, it's not a mystery by any means. It's, no. it's what I know and what I understand. And it's probably why I'm good at it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I faced a lot of um, pushback in, in early recovery from medical professionals who said that I shouldn't be in that environment and that, anyway, it's where I belong and it's where I like to be and it's what I'm good at. So it's where I am. Hmm. Yeah, I, I relate to that. I really relate to um, feeling feeling drawn from early on in my career, just uh, having the knowledge that I that there was an understanding with the people on the other side, with with yeah. with folks who were coming in, accessing care in whatever form that was in any, even in nursing school, any unit that I did my rotation on, I knew that there was that I understood these these folks a little bit maybe differently than than my classmates or colleagues did, I think. So it's interesting that you say that, I relate. And I always felt really called to make sure that other people understood um, that, you know, this, people are not the problem. (laughs) Um, And and I think it's, it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting how after going through this whole process, how many nurses I know that have lived experience with substance use um, work in these areas. And I actually think it's important um, because we have, we have a way of, of being able to navigate these spaces that other people don't. But I also, and I think this is another important piece, I also think that you know, in being involved in the programs and seeing the discrimination and the stigma that so many people faced, Um, I had so much internalized stigma around my own drug use and my own drinking that I actually didn't possibly think that my drinking could be a problem, right? Like, I don't know. It's an interesting position where it's like, well, I have a car, I have a job, I have a husband, I have all of these things. And, and surely this, you know, insane amount of alcohol that I'm consuming is not a problem. It's totally fine. (laughs) So can, can you can you bring us up to speed on that? Can you tell us a bit about about your your journey of of addiction there? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was reading through the questions, and it's funny because if you talk to my friends from my teenage years, um, they will tell you that I was like the worst drinker. Like I was that friend that always drank too much, always threw up, always you know kissed somebody's boyfriend or did something really stupid. Um, but I never saw it that way. I don't know. I always, I just really liked drinking. And so um, I always was, you know, sort of a, a, a big drinker. And um, I was always sort of up for experimenting with whatever substance was around. I would try anything once or, you know, I was sort of that girl that could like keep up with anybody with anything. Um, and so I dabbled like a bit through my teenage years with like mushrooms and 
you know, never any hard drugs. And in my early twenties, I, I sort of started dabbling with stimulants and I loved stimulants. Like it was, that was my jam. <laughs> um, I really liked, I felt, I felt a level of clarity using stimulants and um, I felt a level of calm using stimulants that I didn't use or didn't find using any other drugs. Um, and so I sort of dabbled in stimulants in my twenties and then I was like, oh, okay, I like these a little bit too much. Mm. So I stopped using them kind of altogether. And, and I think the last time I used stimulants was before I moved to Vancouver. So it would have been like 2000, like early 2000 maybe. And then it, they just kind of fell off the face of the earth. And I, I carried on with drinking and I smoked some cannabis here and there, but, um, when I went into nursing school, um, was the point at which I started to identify that I actually had some major mental health stuff going on. Um, I was suffering from pretty intense anxiety and like really, um, profound depressive episodes. So, um, but I like to just sort of pretend that I was fine and I, you know, I was coping and doing it on my own and I didn't need any help and medication was bad. And, um, you know, so I continued to sort of self-medicate with pot and booze and, um, the occasional run in with cocaine, but nothing ever organized. And then I got out of nursing school and I mean, I was that annoying student in nursing school who like won all the prizes and was the leader of everything. And, you know, was writing papers and leading conferences. And, you know, I really, really, I really, I don't know, I just felt so empowered in nursing school. And so I did all of these things. And then, you know, when you graduate from nursing school and they plop you into this program where you're like a nobody with no help and everybody just expects you to get it. Um, and I had this, you know, pretty um, market history of not asking for help. So um, I really, really struggled my first couple of years of practice. And um, I don't know, the acute medicine program at St. Paul's is, is a pretty wild place. You know, it's, um, it's busy. And I think that there's always good intentions of supporting new graduate nurses, but I don't know that those actually ever play out. And I wouldn't have been somebody who would have been identifiable as needing help right? My charting was perfect. My skills were perfect. I, I, I never made, you know, huge mistakes. I never, I was able to talk my way out of anything. Um, and then I started making med errors and, you know, I was talking about how I really loved using stimulants before because they gave me that level of clarity. And, and I think, basically what happened is that I just got so overwhelmed. I was, I was losing focus on, you know, tiny details, different dosages of the same pills and things like that. And, um, I had a really sort of awful run in with a manager who took me to HR and it was just this whole thing. And because I started pointing out some of the systemic issues in the program. And right. basically I was told like, we don't talk about that. And look at all of these errors you're making and it's not our fault and you're not accountable. And it was really confusing. Um, and my drinking had sort of, you know, really ramped up after I started working and shift work. And, you know, I, there was, it was like my bus stop was here. The pub was here and my house was here. Mm. And I would quite often fall into the pub on the way home from the bus stop. And, you know, um, never on a work night, but if I was transitioning from days to nights, it was game on. 
So I had these very sort of strict little rules for myself that I would follow. Um, and then in 2014, I lost an uncle quite suddenly. And then that was in November. And then in early 2015, I lost another uncle. Um, so within six months, two, uh, two very significant people in my life were gone. And um, I did not do grief very well. And my family, bless them, um, it was just sort of this like, there was no funeral for the first uncle and his estate was a mess and we weren't really talking about it. And then by the time the second uncle died, um, my family, my dad, my mom and my brother and I were off in Palm Springs and we didn't come back for the funeral. And it was all very confusing to me. Um, and all of the sort of emotions and stuff that I had around that were really sort of quieted by everybody around me. I got that old, you know, you're being really dramatic you're being hysterical. Um, and I, I was, I was heartbroken and I didn't understand how any of it worked and I didn't understand why it felt so awful. And I also didn't understand why everybody around me was just totally fine. Um, I also have some significant childhood trauma that really sort of started to resurface in that time. Um, you know, I have some, some sexualized violence from like really small childhood that I had never done anything about because I didn't really understand what it was. And then I had significant bullying trauma from um, elementary and middle school. You know, I didn't do well with my peer group and it was relentless. Um, and so I had a really hard time trusting people, making friends, having close relationships because I would do really stupid things like make friends with people that I had, like our, our common thing would be we hated the same person or... <laughs> You know, like I got into these really sort of fair weather friendships. So slowly after the deaths um, of the uncles, I started and, you know, not being able to fit in in this in this unit was like the nursing unit I was working on was just so puzzling to me. Like, why didn't people like me and why didn't they support me? And um, it was really, really hard for me. And, and my drinking definitely increased. And I think it was shortly after... It, it was, it was shortly after my first uncle died that I started using cocaine sort of like recreationally, if you will. Um, I don't know what other people define as recreationally, but for me at that point, it was about once a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it just sort of escalated. And I remember just thinking like, I didn't like, the difference was, is that I wasn't waiting for my friends to get it and then using it. I was getting it myself and using it and not telling anybody. Um, but it calmed everything down for me and it made me able to focus on what I was trying to do. And it made me feel calm. Um, and you know, that sort of like dopamine rush, like I was, I had motivation and my house was clean and things were great and, and nobody, I didn't tell anybody I was using. So it was just sort of this weird, like little secret I had with myself. I'm in Such my a tr turning point. Hey. I had, I had like these little, like I had, I don't know, I have like 20 pairs of glasses. It's like one of my things. So I would, I, in my bathroom, I had all these glasses cases and they were just like full of empty bags. <laughs> I was like, oh, I better get rid of that. Um, and, you know, uh, I had friends, sorry. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, I'm curious if maybe this is something that you're going to talk about, but was there any indication to you at the time or or since that time that the stimulant use might be linked to uh, ADHD 
I'm diagnosis. Trying to push that out now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just when I hear somebody say uh, calming and with that kind of a draw to a stimulant, usually it's undiagnosed uh, ADHD. Yeah. And all the executive dysfunction I had in my early 20s, which I somehow learned to, it's, I have every hallmark um, sign and symptom of ADHD, but I think like other people has been misdiagnosed as anxiety and depression. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so we just sort of carried on and I, I, you know, I was drinking and I was like, I would go weeks at a time sort of using cocaine and then stop and like the one thing was, is that the more shifts I had, the less cocaine I used because I would never use at work. I had this very, or on a work day. Like if I knew I had to work the next day, I wouldn't use. I had this very sort of controlled and um, interesting approach to it, right? Where um, that that was a line that I didn't cross and I didn't cross it for a very long time. And in fact, I never used at work. Um, I never went to work after using anything like that. But what would happen is I would go on these benders and then crash for days after and go to work in that process, which is equally as, you know, intoxicating and not, I was not well. So basically that went on all the way through sort of 2015 and it got bad, like really fast, like by probably May of 2015 it was may of 2015 we had the funeral for my first uncle and i came back to edmonton and i wasn't using cocaine here and i was a disaster um you know all the like i was exhausted i was emotional i was labile i was you know agitated um and one of my cousins noticed and was like, what's going on here? And, and we sort of talked about it. And that's when I was like, I'm just going to stop using drugs. This is clearly not doing anything for me. Um, and I recognized that I, I needed to, you know, do some counseling and get my life together. And it, the booze had nothing to do with it. So fast forward like a week later and I'm back in Vancouver and using like an eight ball of coca day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she it felt good. Um, yeah. And it just sort of progressed all the way through the summer. And at the end of the summer, I started to notice that I was feeling really awful about interacting with patients who had profound trauma. And I was experiencing a stand to be compassion fatigue. Um, But at that point, I didn't understand because these are people that I was so drawn to before and their stories were so important to me. And, you know, I had spent so much of my life trying to advocate for folks. And and then all of a sudden I was just like, I couldn't I couldn't read histories. I started was having nightmares. I wasn't sleeping. Um, It was really awful. And and that's when I decided that I I obviously needed a change in work and environment and I applied for and accepted an ICU position, which involved going into an academic setting for four months starting in January. So I worked my last shift on urban health Christmas Eve. I had a bender that lasted straight into the new year and started school at BCIT. Now, the thing about academics for me is that it's always been a place that's easy for me to do well. 
You know, I can walk in, I know how to write a paper. I know how to do homework. I know how to do labs. Like that stuff is all very, very easy for me, but it was also away from the bedside. And I didn't feel that same sort of like ethical obligation to be sober. Right. So I was using all the way through that program um, daily. And, you know, I would basically just like use in the morning, go to school, pick up on the way home, do my homework. I had these like beautiful, perfect, elaborate notes and, you know, all of the hallmarks of like my brain really likes stimulants and does really well on them. Um, I did great in that course. And of course, then we got into a point where we had clinical. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I had to stop using, um, you know, on those days that I had clinical because that I just would not go to the bedside loaded. Can I uh, intervene for? Yeah. I I just think it's interesting to note here um, that you're making that decision that you're, you have the power and, and you've made that choice and that's your line. You're not going to go over it. And because of ethical reasons in your case, but it could be other reasons. For me, there was a there was a line as well, and uh, I think it's just it's important for for listeners to understand that that goes quite contrary to what we are told in uh, in the older yeah. models that everything is, you know, you have no control over the drug or the the alcohol, and that it's completely taken over your life. And you know, that's obviously not uh, not the yeah. whole picture, right? Yeah. I was actually told that that wasn't true, that I just had patterns and that I had no control over them, which is absolutely not true. I, I 100% had control over them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so, it's so, it's so frustrating. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Um, so yeah, I carried on and then it was, you know, time to do clinical and, and I mean, my brain was just like, mushy by that point um I was still doing really well academically but as far as like being able to plan out my day as a nurse and that sort of like multitasking um anticipating planning phase was very um impaired right so I got through it and I mean I could do the basics well enough that you know, nobody really noticed anything was going on. And we went back into the classroom and then, and then the second round of clinical came up. And of course we were expected to be much more independent. And I emotionally at this point was just, I mean, I was not doing well (laughs) and, you know, was really struggling with grief and was really struggling with like what I thought was imposter syndrome. But now I, I sort of know is, you know, I just, I had such terrible self-esteem and such a terrible self-image. Like, I just didn't think that I was worthy of anything. And I just really hated myself and, you know, couldn't see a lot of value in my, in my own existence. Things had gotten really dark. And I mean, I had always sort of struggled with, with suicidal ideation and, it, it's, it's still something that just is for me. Like when people say, like, whenever I talk to doctors about refills on prescriptions, they're like, Oh, and do you have any, you know, suicidal thoughts? I'm like, yeah, every day. And they just kind of like, stop. I'm like, that's just, that's what that doesn't happen to you. <laughs> you know, like, it's just always been a baseline thing for me. And, um, 
it's never been like with a plan or anything like that. Um, but it's just that passive ideation has always been there. But it became a little bit more than passive at that point because I recognized that I didn't want to stop using drugs. <laughs> like yeah. I felt good and I didn't want to stop. And I think I told myself that I didn't want to stop to hide the fact that I probably couldn't stop. Sure. Um, but it was like how I made sense of it in my mind. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody else. T- totally. Ken, uh, when you, when you mention imposter syndrome, do you, do you mean that up against the kind of the archetype of the super nurse, the, you know, the, what the expectation of you was and what, how the perception of you was in the workplace? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, it's interesting because like I was talking about how I was like such a, like, I was a, I was a nursing school star and I just hadn't felt any of that validation in my career. Mm. Like nobody was telling me like, you're such a good nurse and you're doing such a good job. And I really lacked that external validation. And that, and that was something that I really needed. You know, using that for that was your fuel, right? To tell me I was okay and to tell me that I was doing it right and to tell me that, you know, I was I was important. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was that big self-esteem piece for me. Um, and I mean, I was just a nobody in in the middle of all of the other nobodies, basically. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it's hard when you go into a system or a program that has like a couple hundred nurses employed in it. Um, and it's funny cause it's something that I'm sort of fighting with now as I am a nobody again. Um, but, but yeah, it, it became really difficult for me to, you know, that feedback loop of like doing things for acknowledgement and doing things for gratification and doing things for validation was, was very unnurtured. And so, right. you know, I, I, wanted people to tell me I was great and, you know, all of that stuff. And it wasn't happening. Um, but, but what did end up happening is the last week of my clinicals for critical care training. Um, I had been on a major bender because we had a break from classes to clinicals and my birthday fell in the middle of all of that. And, uh, yeah, I'd been going hard for a couple of days, like probably about a week, Mm. not really sleeping, not really eating, you know, all those things that are conducive with life. Um, And I collapsed at clinical. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So my instructor took me down to the emergency room and the doctor was like, yeah, you know, you're super dehydrated. Um, you're clearly stressed. Um, and I, I just really think that you need to get some rest. And, and then he said, you know, you might have a, a urinary tract infection, your white cell counts up a bit, and maybe we should do a urine sample. And I was like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I work in this hospital and you are not getting a urine sample for me. I will be fine. <laughs> you saw Thank that you. coming, did you? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, bye-bye. Well, cause I started to get paranoid at that point too. Right. right. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating. And like, I thought there was a raccoon in my house one day. And my husband was like, we have a black dog. Is that what you saw? Like, and he had started to catch on that things were not right. And a lot of other significant people in my life had started to catch on. Um, People were starting to get worried, but nobody said anything to me. I was fine. (laughs) 
Did you sign an AMA form? Did you? No, he just, they just discharged me. They were like, see you later. Here's, they gave me a, a fluid bolus. So my blood pressure came back up and a snack. So my blood sugar came back up and I went home to rest and came back the next day. Like nothing had happened. Um, so I made it through that clinical and, and, you know, I passed the critical care course with distinction as I do. And, um, I started my orientation the next week and I was a disaster. My first orientation shift, I like my dexterity was off. I was having trouble connecting IVs to um, like pressure caps. <laughs> I couldn't like I couldn't line things up, and I had a propofol drip going all over the floor because I forgot to turn it off before I disconnected the line, and like I was just oh. I was not okay physically. And then I started to notice the nurse, I, I wa actually walked into a conversation where my orient orienting nurse was talking about me to other nurses. Like, I don't think this chick is going to make it. Ooh. And I was like, fuck. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, Not something you want to hear. No. And as somebody who had challenged or had been challenged by like intense bullying my whole life and imposter syndrome and all the rest of it i was like oh no they hate me that's a nightmare for you must have been hey oh i lost my mind yeah i lost my mind i called in sick for my next shift <clears throat> and went on a bender right because <laughs> it was it was like i had i knew that i was not okay at that point that was like a big indicator to me that it was actually quite bad um because you can put on a lot of makeup and you can cover up a lot of things and people won't notice that you're tired and that you, your skin looks awful and, you know, but when your actual basic nursing skills have suffered to the point that you can't do basic site to source checks properly from the IV pump to the IV um, line, like to the pick line that there's, I had no business being there. None. Can I ask you what, uh, at that point, uh, when you'd taken that next day off after you'd walked in on them talking about you, when you went on that bender, what was going through your head as far as, because I, when I, in my, uh, when things were really bad for me, I, I didn't have any kind of long-term plan other than I'm just going to keep going until the wheels fall off. Um, yeah. Did you, were you maintaining some kind of a long-term plan at that point? Or were you just kind of saying, fuck it, I don't care anymore? I didn't give a shit. Yeah. But you know, what scared me is that I had fucked up a propofol drip. Mm. Yeah, that's bad. And I became very aware that I was going to kill someone. Yeah. And that was the most terrifying moment. I, I, I remember sitting in my car, that was a night shift. And I remember sitting in my car and just bawling because I didn't give a shit about harming myself. <laughs> but when it became very apparent that I was probably going to harm somebody else, I lost my mind. I'm a terrible person. Now I'm a terrible nurse. I'm a risk. I'm danger. I'm bad. I'm, you know, like all of these things that, um, those sort of like inner narratives, um, amped right up um 
and I called in sick. And that's actually when I started to recognize that I was probably going to need some help. Um, and I didn't know what that looked like. And the idea of, you know, not being a nurse anymore was like horrific. Like my grade one yearbook, you know, those little things that your mom writes in, like I went to Disneyland and when I grow up, I want to be like my grade one yearbook is I want to be a nurse, six years old. So like, it was always, and I mean, my mom was a nurse, right? It was something that I admired and looked up to. And, and I felt a lot of integrity around and, and recognizing that I had not only compromised that, but that I was incapable of doing it at that moment was just so crushing. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm just going to kill myself. Cause I don't know what to do about this. Yeah. Um, Cause you've got, you've got the shame now of you've got the shame, the guilt of what you're doing. You've mm-hmm. got your past to deal with and you haven't grieved your uncles properly. So you, you've got all this. And it sounds to me like probably in your family, any kind of processing of emotion was frowned upon um, externally. externally. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of in a situation where you're, you've, you're reaching a threshold basically of what you can contain. Yeah. Right? That's a really good way of explaining it. Um, and of course my husband and I mean, bless him. He just kind of kept me safe. You know, there was no, um, like he knew that I was using, he didn't know the extent that I was using. Um, but I'd always been a heavy drinker. I'd always sort of been chaotic and, you know, going to the pub and not coming back for hours. And, and it was nothing, there was no like real warning signs to him until I started seeing raccoons in the house and mm. <laughs> you know, that sort of, he was like, eh, what's going on? But he always just said, you know, like, you're going to be okay. There was never any, like, you got to leave or, um, I don't really think he knew what to do. Are you, are you still with you? Are you still with you? Yeah. Um, I'm going to check before I say this, but that sounds like a really good husband. He's pretty wonderful. Like not many people understand that when you're really committed to somebody like that, your job, your main job is to love them even when they're going through shit. And a lot, I've seen this many times and it just disgusts me when a husband or a wife will uh, step in and, and try to force the person into, you know, all of a sudden the police show up and they've told their employer. I just, I, I'm like, you're, how on earth can you live with yourself doing something like, to do that to somebody you love so much? I just, I can't imagine it, but in their head, they think they're helping. Right there's a there's a dominant part of recovery world that would tell them they're doing the right thing exactly exactly um remind me to tell you about the conversations that greg had with my doctors at homewood Mm. okay so can you can you bring us up to um how did you go from that just pre-crisis state to to reporting yourself to the to the college it was about a 48 hour period it happened very quickly so um, I decided I was going to kill myself. And then I was like, I shouldn't kill myself. That's really dumb. 
Um, and I also just really want to do more cocaine. So whatever. Um, I basically like was too executively disorganized. You know? Now that's <laughs> honesty, folks. It was that's all of a sudden the next day and I didn't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I still happen. So um, I started talking to Greg and, and, you know, I started going to meetings, like 12 step meetings with a friend of mine who, um, basically set a boundary with me was just like, I'm not going to hang around with you when you're using because she had a history of using stimulants and just wasn't really comfortable with it. And I, and I was just like, whatever, I'm just not going to tell you anyway. Um, but yeah, I started going to meetings and sort of like understanding that I was powerless. <laughs> um, but very quickly after that, realized that I did not have the tools to abstain from using. Mostly because I was not willing to stop drinking. Because <laughs> well, I didn't, I mean, I didn't have a drinking problem. I had a cocaine problem. This is a particularly insidious trap. And uh, I've seen it get a few people. But when I see people in that one, I just, I feel for them. Because uh, alcohol and cocaine is a bitch of a combination. They make the a alcohol, monster. Yeah, because you, the alcohol takes your ability to make a good decision away. And after a few drinks, the first thing you want is the cocaine. And then when you've got too much cocaine, you need to calm down. And if you don't have benzos or whatever, that means you got to drink more. And it's this never ending is until you realize that basically people in that situation must abstain, at least from those two for a, a significant period of time. Well, and I had started throwing in gravel. Okay. Yeah, sure. I, I decided that I was a pharmacist at that point. Mm. And I would just take hundreds of milligrams of gravel so I could go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. That was a reasonable answer. Well, it works, right? It did. Yeah. It and did. it's an, ang- it, it helps with anxiety. It did. And nobody likes that 4am. Uh, I've been doing Coke for 24, 48 hours. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I went to a couple of meetings. I very quickly realized that I was not going to be able to stop. And I had this job that I was supposed to start this full-time position in the ICU. And I was like, I'm fucked. Mm-hmm. And oddly, I had a classmate from Langara who had gone to Homewood. And so I reached out to them and I just said, like, I don't know what to do here. And she just said, you know what? You will not lose your job. Um, And I was like, yeah, fuck it. And I emailed the college because it was a weekend. I think I emailed the college. Directly. You emailed them first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) I can't work. And and who is this colleague who just like, if she had been through that, wouldn't like she should have been giving you all sorts of tips that would be it worked for her though oh my god okay yeah okay yeah. okay i mean what kind of a response did you get um <laughs> so the registrar of the college just like emailed me back and was like don't go to work i'll call you and i was like okay well, and then I never called the union. I don't know. I'm so stupid. I called, yeah, I emailed the college and said, hey, I'm struggling. I don't think I should be working. I don't think I'm fit to practice. And they were like, you are not fit to practice. By the sounds of it, do not go to work. Um, call in sick for your next set. 
and uh, we'll be in touch on Monday. And this really kind lady who is no longer there called me on Monday and she just said, hey, okay, so this is the situation. You're going to be okay. Don't go to work. I will get the union rep to call you. Um, and don't tell your employer what's going on. Just tell them you're sick. And I was like, okay, thank you, kind lady from the college. Um, called in sick for a job I hadn't even finished orientation for. And just said that I thought it was going to be that I may be off for a while, that I was struggling with some, some health issues. Um, so that was the beginning of May. And then I went on a real good bender. <laughs> then all hell broke loose. Like then it was like 9am cocaine, you mm. know, because I didn't, I didn't have any professional obligations anymore. And also I really expected people to throw me some sort of parade for being such a good person that I wasn't endangering other people. Like I had this like yeah. well, twisted idea of how, you know, like that's that, that like self-righteous sort of, I'm a I, good I, addict. <laughs> well, I, I, I do want to commend you on that. Um, me and Corey were discussing this uh, earlier because it is definitely not the norm. Um, it's actually quite rare and uh, believe me, folks, this goes on on a, on a weekly basis over and over and over again. And it's, it's quite rare that you have somebody who's making, they've still got enough judgment or ethics or whatever it takes to, and I think because you actually, you, because of your passion for your job and your genuine care for your patients, that was probably enough to motivate you to, uh, to do it, even though you knew that that was going to be a, that was going to put a significant spin on your career. Let's also add like a huge component of fear. Okay. I was terrified um, that I was going to hurt someone. Mm -hmm. And also that I just would never get out of it. Right. I mean, I was like, I really liked cocaine. (laughs) like a lot and and I didn't see any sort of like easy path out and that to me was was petrifying um because sorry I'm just turning this silence on my phone again so these text messages stop dinging um but I I just didn't I didn't understand how how I could get out of it yeah the the other thing I was going to say that I know that Nathan and I have both we've talked about this before we've encountered it before that period between reporting, whether you self-report or, or someone else reports you and going off work to when treatment starts is such a high risk time for people. Don't know how I lived. So high risk. Yeah. You know, what ended up happening is um, I left Vancouver. I came to Edmonton um, because I was going to die. There's no question in my mind that I was going to die. I had started, you know, I was going downtown to pick up. I was using dealers that I didn't know. I owed a lot of people money. I was looking at needles, like all sorts of things were happening. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I was like, well, if I'm going to go to treatment, I might as well really go to treatment. (laughs) Yeah. You're also dodging fentanyl, right? It was right at the beginning of the summer of 2016. That, I lost a friend that summer to uh, a rec- genuine recreational, you know, didn't yeah. have any problems with cocaine. He'd do it maybe a couple of times a summer. And I actually came here to Kelowna and uh, he didn't know who he was getting it from. And that was it. Dead. Just like that. Yep. Yep. 
And that's, I mean, that was one of the pieces that I was, I mean, I was conscious of it, but that would never happen to me. Right. You know? Um, And so, yeah, I just kind of went on this bender and that was the beginning of May. I ended up going, I checked into Homewood June 12th. So it was about six weeks. And of course, I mean, what a confusing period of time to try and do all this paperwork and sign all of these things. And for some reason, all of the people I was dealing with were named Kathleen. (laughs) (laughs) Make matters worse. At Providence was Kathleen and the person at the union was Kathleen. And there was some other Kathleen. And I was just like, what the fuck? What if they were all Karen's? Right? What if they were all the same person? I mean, that so, like, I didn't know what was what. And of course, I had to go for an IME, which was horrendous. Um, at what point did you, at what point during the IME did you realize that uh, this was going to be a different experience than what you'd hoped? Right from the get-go. That fast, eh? It was the most terrifying and I don't want to, I mean, I don't think that that, I don't think that that doctor intentionally scared me. That's not what I think, but I think that it was just so cold and so they, you know, they just assume everything you're saying is a lie. Yes, you're being yeah. processed like a piece of meat, like a piece and of shit. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe a piece of shit is more more proper. Um, and you're like very you're vulnerable. Stupid. Yeah, you're stupid and you don't know anything. Yeah. Um, and reading that assessment about myself was horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful moment. Yeah, you know, it was query borderline personality disorder, query um, this and that, query this and that, um, severe. They, they put borderline personality disorder on everybody. They would diagnose dogs. If you had a bird, they would diagnose the bird. Yeah. I mean, it is preposterous how they throw around that diagnosis, which itself is ill-defined. Absolutely. Well, and yeah. as somebody who had been told that they were a hysterical woman for years, um, that was really like, oh, maybe I am a hysterical woman. Right, you know, yeah. it just was really, it was really just another destructive, um, hurtful. I, it just, yeah, it was just such an awful experience. It's kind of the opposite of what you would hope when you're that vulnerable, right? Yeah. I thought I was going to just get some help. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, it's, she made comments about my marriage and she made comments about my ability to be honest. She like, it just felt very, it was very judgment, shame based. I don't know. It just wasn't what I, yeah. it was awful. Did, did the doctor's last name start with an M? No, but I happen to know who you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> no, and and um, this doctor was married to another doctor who does them, and you know that whole yeah circus. So 
at that point, I recognized um, that I was like probably going to die if I stayed in Vancouver. And I booked a plane ticket to Edmonton. And I just said, you know, I'm going to go to Edmonton. And I showed up at my parents' house, much to my father's. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you coming here? And I was like, because I can't stay here. Like, it's not going to work out well. And he actually like really didn't want me. Oh, that's nice. Well, he just didn't really understand it. And he didn't understand. I mean, I come from a family of people who, you know, liked drinking. And there was a lot of drinking and it was just a totally normal thing. And I, I think my dad thought I was making a big deal out of nothing. Right. They, he didn't really understand the cocaine piece. Um, and the minute I showed up on the doorstep, 120 pounds soaking wet, both my parents just kind of went, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there were some interesting discussions that happened that week. You know, my mom really understood it. And, and my dad, bless him, did not. Like, he would still talk about, you know, people who use drugs as those people. And I was just like, but dad, I'm those people. And he's like, no, you're not you're not those people. And I was like, I'm actually going into an institution on the other side of the country. And I don't have a license to practice nursing. I am those people. Maybe he's those people. Maybe he was. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think that that was one of the things that it it upset him because we had always always drank together and we Mm. had always, you know, laughed our way through it. But probably a little bit of of fear on his part. And I remember actually saying to him at one point, like, it's okay for you to feel uncomfortable with this and it's okay for you to be upset with it because it's upsetting. It is truly upsetting. Um, But it was just another, like, I need you to love me and I need you to tell me that I'm okay and that you're proud of me. Um, And he did eventually, but yeah. And so then I went off to Homewood Surely that's where the, the, the healing began. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Did you yeah. guys, did you have to stay in that Airbnb the night before? With the uh, weird lady? No, I, uh, I just got dropped off at the doorstep. Okay. So I flew in the day before and I stayed at this little Airbnb around the corner from Homewood. And, um, like went and did a walk past on my way to find some smokes. And, you know, I, I didn't use any cocaine in that two weeks that I was at my parents' house, mm-hmm. which is also interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I drank twice. Yeah. So being walking into this institution and being told I'm powerless and I have no control, I was like, but <laughs> yeah, okay. Like there was yeah. nothing in my urine when I got to, got to Homewood. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a very, and I was there willingly, you know, yeah. I was like, yes, please help me, help me. Um, and they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So it was a real, it was really disappointing and infuriating and traumatizing and, um, I don't know. It just kind of started my war with the machine, if you will. Yeah. Get, uh, I just have one question about, um, yeah. for, for me, the only reason I got through the first time is because I, I met somebody in there and he'd already been thrown out before. Uh, 
because of basically what I was doing, which was asking too many questions. And um, did I just freeze up there, guys? Yeah, you did. Just for a second. Yeah, you're good now. Okay. I'm not sure what part is going to get through there. But anyway, um, I didn't get kicked out because I had somebody there who had warned me that if I kept talking the way I was talking, I was going to get kicked out. But in the beginning, I mean, I've... I just happened to, I mean, I found a bunch of mistakes with, uh, you know, they were putting, they were putting slides up that were incorrect and telling everybody things that, like their, their information wasn't even right. Uh, and so that's where I started looking. And then when they started talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, the program and I had many questions about those type of, you know, the control thing, the, uh, um, you know, just the, the, the common ones that people have trouble with, with, uh, the 12 steps. But it, I was encouraged to keep my mouth shut. And I was told several times, and there were, I was a separate meeting. I was taken aside. And I wondered, how, how did you deal? Because it sounds like you had the same response where you, you looked around and you're like, oh, my God, I'm in an insane asylum. Like, literally. So, literally. So did you, <laughs> so did you, um, did you keep your shit together and just do what you had to do to get through? Or did you put up a fuss? What was your strategy there? It was a healthy combination of okay. the two. Um, so I had a lot of sort of friends, like my, my friends at Homewood, my rehab besties. Um, a lot of them were doing the, the trauma wing of the program. And I was told on admission that I likely needed to do an extra week for the trauma piece. And that made me feel really hopeful um, because I thought, okay, these people can see that like this shit has happened and that, that I don't know how to do this. Um, but I was very quickly labeled as manipulative. Right. And very quickly labeled as borderline basically mm -hmm. that's third and that's i could third. tell by the i could tell by the way the nurses interacted with me mm -hmm. that that's what they thought that i was just like like a privileged white kid who um just wanted attention that's what it felt like and i remember when i realized that um like the first week i was there i like i couldn't not be a nurse like i hung around the nursing station and I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to go do this yoga class. And they were like, well, no, you have to be in your lecture. Like, you don't get to just pick and choose what you're going to do. And I was like, oh, but don't you know who I am? Like, <laughs> I've taught <laughs> these courses. What do you mean I have to go to these courses? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not like that guy who works in the car factory. You know, <laughs> like I was very, um, I mean, in hindsight, I was exactly like a lot of the people that were there. I just didn't really understand that. But I remember going through, like, you have to go through those series of, like, the step one lecture and then going to a meeting every day and, and you know, being, like, basically told that I was a piece of shit and, you know, that I had ruined my family and I had ruined my life and I had, you know, done all of these things that were, you know, like, not repairable and I was going to have to end my relationship because my husband smokes pot and, you know, all of this stuff and on and on and on. And I remember, like when they were like okay so you're going to be discharged next week and I was like no no hold on we had talked about the week of like that extra week and they were like oh yeah no you don't need it okay 
and I had a meltdown, like a screaming, crying, yelling, almost a code white meltdown in the hallway outside the nursing station. (laughs) And my primary nurse pulled me aside and we went and sat down in one of those corners with the chairs by the windows where you go to contemplate your step four. Um, And she just basically let me yell and scream at her. And I just said, like, I feel worse now than I ever have in my whole life. And I have no coping mechanisms. I've been taught nothing. Um, All I've done is go to meetings. Um, I don't have any skills. Like this is, you cannot send me home like this. Mm -hmm. And her response was, you just need to do the steps. Yeah, yeah. It's quite the racket they got going on there. And I guarantee you, well, I shouldn't say guarantee, but I would be highly suspicious that they took the money for that extra week because it's, you know, they're getting the extra out of province fee there. So that's about, uh, they would have cleared about 8,000 extra dollars in fees on you and then not offered you the program. Yeah. And And it was was another example of somebody telling me that my trauma wasn't real. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that in itself, like how, how, how harmful, what a missed opportunity when you've got someone who's saying, I think I could actually benefit from this. Mm-hmm. And then to turn around and say, no, 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 you don't need that. You see like, steps. Yeah. You need to fix yourself. Is basically what they told me. And I was just like, all right. <laughs> so do you, do you, what have you in hindsight, have you been able to, um, to extrapolate anything, anything therapeutic from it? Or were the, were the lessons of what you didn't get, were, was there more value in those lessons of the things that were missing for you? Because then it, it should kind of, did that give you direction of where to go next in oh, your journey? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was just another process of me jumping through hoops and showing people that I could check the boxes. Like, I don't know if you got that daily checklist where you had to like, I brushed my teeth. I ate three meals. I (laughs) like, I I really did need to be taught those things because I had completely lost all of it. And, and, you know, I I like checklists and I like things to line up and I'm, I'm very like, Oh, look, I did all the things on the list. I'm very accomplished. Um, But you know, my husband picked me up from the airport. We drove past my pub and my friend, the cocaine dealer was standing right outside. I was like, Oh, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't, you know, I, I've never, I never relapsed. And it's interesting because of course, Caduceus and, you know, I had to drive out to Surrey to do monitoring. And then, but the thing that was so interesting to me is that I, before I had actually recognized that I needed help with my substance use, I recognized that I was suffering from a lot of trauma and I had signed myself up on a wait list for free trauma counseling. And by the time I came through Homewood and whatever, 16 months later, I was at the top of the list for the free trauma counseling. Uh-huh. So when I got back to Vancouver, um, I was seeing just a regular um, 
counselor, like a registered counselor who was a 12 stepper and like really, really pushed 12 step programming. And, you know, you're doing this and you're doing that and you're amends and all the rest of it. And cause you know, I was just a piece of shit and I had fully internalized it by that point that I was actually just a piece of shit. And, um, I was going to meetings and, you know, all the mean girl shit that goes on in AA. And it was just very, very difficult for me to be there because of my history with groups of women and, and, you know, groups in general. And I could see right through so much of the shit that was going on there, but you can't call that out. You know, there's no, that's sacred. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for the program of AA. Um, And, you know, you're here today. And, you know, how you would have never gotten sober without this. Mm. Um, And who knows, maybe I wouldn't have. But as somebody who had, like, been stripped down to literally nothing, the last thing I needed was to be stripped down further and told, basically, that, you know, I had a part in everything. Yeah. Cause I didn't, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, particularly not the childhood sexual abuse, but I was told I did. Yeah. Which sounds like a trauma in itself to be given that, that harmful of a message is Indeed. a compounding trauma. So was the, was the trauma counselor that you that you suddenly were at the top of the list for, was that the 12 step one or, or did you find a different, was that a different person? It was a different person. And so what okay. happened is um, because of course I was on long-term disability at this point, And I think I like, I don't know, I didn't have benefits or something had gotten screwed up and I couldn't afford to go to the counselor anymore. Um, And the trauma counseling was free. So I got permission from my monitoring company to go to the free counseling instead because it was required that I see a counselor and they had to be a drug and alcohol counselor and they had to do, you know, and like I couldn't afford to exist at this point. Um, because I'd also like cash advanced so many credit cards and like, mm. you know, cocaine's expensive. <laughs> cocaine is expensive folks. Um, real expensive when you're putting that much of it in your face a day. So yeah, I, I started seeing this counselor, um, and it was actually through, um, a women's, uh, like a, against sexual violence organization. And she was very familiar with 12 steps. And, and I had kind of started to like, I had never said out loud to anybody that I thought the 12 steps were stupid. Yep. <laughs> and I was doing all the things and going to all the meetings and doing service. And, you know, because I really just needed to keep myself busy at that point. I mean, there's no question that in early recovery, people need community. Sure. People and- need community permanently. I mean, it's uh But at that point, I didn't know a single person who didn't use drugs and drink. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was terrifying. So I literally just kind of rolled into a meeting and just like clung on to people. Um, (laughs) And, you know, did everything that the monitoring people were asking me to do because they didn't have a choice. (laughs) You had to get permission for you to get permission from the monitoring company to engage in this uh, with this trauma counselor. Because she wasn't a drug and alcohol counselor. Yeah. Now, I mean, for, for folks who, and I've encountered uh, the same experience where I've had to really fight for the, for the counseling that I, that worked for me. And I had to really justify it to several um, bodies within this process that, that this counseling I did was valid and it was not only valid, but extremely helpful. 
so can you tell us a little bit about the the experience with the monitoring and and that being one of them that you had to give justification for why you required or why this this counting was suitable for you it seems like a real loss of any autonomy to me <laughs> oh my god i mean and i say this like i don't think that the people running those programs are bad people i genuinely think they think they're helping um but for me they weren't um that whole program was so humiliating and so dehumanizing and so it just you know you can't be trusted you're a bad person and you can't be trusted and um you can't make decisions for yourself like i was encouraged to leave my partner by yeah. a, a sponsor and that was backed up by monitoring by Caduceus and people in the monitoring program who Jesus. You know, well, if he's smoking pot and he can't not smoke pot then you can't be there that's in your monitoring contract you're not allowed to have drugs in your house he's endangering your recovery so it would have been better for you to have lost your most vital connection in their eyes yeah. than to yeah wow keep in mind here that these monitoring companies Many of the people working there have absolutely no background or training wow. or, or any type of authoritative voice to make such a call, especially as, as one as significant as, uh, you know, telling you that you can't go to whoever counselor because you're finding it helpful. At, uh, it blows my mind that in an industry that's already bereft of any evidence-based treatment, I mean... The whole thing is kind of a smoke and mirror show uh, to have the audacity to stand in the way of something when, when you're, they're being told that it might be helpful for you. It's just, it's a strange thing to contemplate. It, yeah. it's, it seems unreal. Yeah. And well, that advice is amazing. Holy smokes. I'm just, I'm stunned. You need to put your recovery first. Yeah. If your husband is not on board, then like when I was at Homewood, Greg came to visit me and um, my primary nurse and the doctor talked to him, like actually brought him in. And we had a family meeting about him smoking pot. Jesus Christ. And he was just like, what the fuck are you people? <laughs> and at the time I was horrified because I was like, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> well maybe you can just smoke pot like when i'm not home like just tell them you're gonna do this yeah and he was just like no i'm an adult <laughs> yeah. i'm a 45 year old man like i i actually don't need to explain myself to you i am not endangering my wife and you guys are off your fucking rocker yeah um but they literally convinced me that it was like i believed them you know it's so <laughs> anyway well, you're in a vulnerable state. That's what makes it so it, it's extra egregious because they're dealing with people who don't have the regular defenses even to, to make sense of what's going on. And you see it when you're in there. Many people are just, they're swallowing it. Right. So I remember calling my parents one night and, and I can't, I think it was after we did our, like, I don't know, whatever step, whatever class. And, where they basically tell you that you were an alcoholic your whole life. Mm -hmm. 
and that your childhood behaviors are, are very, you know, they're evidence that you were very selfish and self self-seeking. And, and I remember saying something on the phone and my dad was just like, okay, no. <laughs> remember, remember when I stole those loonies and he was like, yeah, you wanted a chocolate bar. Yeah. And so like the monitoring thing. So I, I have hydronephrosis in one of my kidneys. So I had a lot of dilute urines. Yeah. Mm, shit. Um, so I had a lot of witnessed urines. Oh my God. That is terrible. As somebody with a history of, of sexual violence and, um, you know, basically being told like, well, you just have to do witness urines. And it wasn't until my last year of monitoring. Hello. It wasn't <laughs> until my last year of monitoring that I reminded them, like, I have hydronephrosis, you guys. And they were like, mm. oh, yeah. Well, that explains it. Yeah. For, for anyone who's listening right now, if you're in a similar situation uh, or you're having any trouble with uh, monitoring due to dilutes, um, there is a method to prevent that from happening. Uh, just contact me on the, uh, the show's email and I can, I'll gladly, uh, tell you how to do that. Yeah. They, um, it was awful. And that was also around the time when I discovered that I was going to have to pay for monitoring. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, what do you do? You don't have a choice. Yeah. I ended up finding somebody to pay for it. For me through a professional connection which was incredible and and he actually you know is, is sort of a mentor to me and, and basically said like this is a trauma-informed step on behalf of this organization and um i don't want you to worry about this wow that's so cool and then did it for other people as well wow yeah um like i had people step in and support me you know and and um I left that sponsor who, you know, told me I had to um, do an amends to my abuser and like all of that crap. And, um, you know, the monitoring program, I got pretty sassy with them by the end. Like I was just like, you know, I just actually don't fucking care anymore. Mm. How long yeah. was your agreement for? Oh, <laughs> um, I started monitoring in 2016 when I got out of treatment and I completed in February, 2020. Four years. Yeah. yeah. Well, because of course, it, well, it was three years, but they don't tell you that three years doesn't start until you go back to work. Right. right. So I was off work from May until I went back in a very, very reduced capacity in January um, and then had to fight my way out of going back to ICU. Oh, yeah. That's something that's got to change too. I mean, these gradual re, uh, return to works are not, they're not nearly gentle enough and you can't be throwing people, especially if you've got uh, trauma or PTSD, you got to stay away from acute care, man. You can't be going back right into those heavy artillery zones. It's Yeah. Well, yeah. and so I started off in long-term care for exposure, basically. Mm. And then I finally got the union involved because I was just like, this guy will not let me out of doing a gradual return in ICU. And I never worked there. Like I didn't no, even finish my no. orientation. Nobody knows who I am. 
nobody knows like I'm terrified of all these people that I caught talking behind my back I don't have any support it's too overwhelming I basically need to like go nursing for kindergarten is what I needed (laughs) you know like I needed baby steps with people who loved me and would tell me I was good so I went back to urban health (laughs) so Kenan as you were then doing doing the actual trauma work with with the counselor independently Mm -hmm. what were you what was your at that point what was your relationship with with drugs and alcohol was there a relationship or was this really changing your whole perspective on it was doing that trauma work was the first time i felt any relief as a person who was being forced to be abstinent yeah um which I now recognize is actually control. <laughs> mm. I was choosing not to use and drink. Yeah. Yeah. I did it not because of monitoring, not because of the 12 steps, not because of um, anything, but me. I yeah, did that. In spite of those things. In fact, in yeah. spite, yeah. in spite yeah. of the yeah. trauma that was reoccurring. Yeah. I yeah. did that. I the- didn't use or drink. The treatment actually, the current treatment protocol is an obstacle. It doesn't help. It makes it worse. It made it much worse. Yeah. Um, But, you know, my dad was really supportive and my partner was really supportive. And and it got to the point where I was kind of like just doing AA because that's what I had to do. And I knew that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that last, it would have been like the fall of December or 2019, I had like a traumatic incident at work that I went off the rails. Like I ended up um, having a le- doing a leave in 2020. Like I was on mm. on a, a, tra- a traumatic stress leave March until September, so oh, the beginning wow. of the pandemic. And that's when um, I mean I had done a whole bunch of the trauma counseling where things started to make more sense. And I started to learn about like the window of tolerance and my nervous system and, you know, all of these things that had been going haywire for most of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And understanding, you know, the impact of diet and understanding the impact, like why I couldn't exercise consistently because it would just send me into a trauma reaction. Um, And that was, you know, I wasn't trying hard enough and I needed to exercise more to meet my monitoring agreement. And, you know, like just, it was just like learning to combat all the stress that was coming from all the things I was being forced to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That in itself is a, is a battle. Yeah. But I also had like, I had a couple of friends that came through behind me um other nurses and and we kind of all just like commiserated together like this is so fucking stupid Mm -hmm. but yeah that last like sort of five or six months of my monitoring agreement um I had a couple friends overdose and die that I had met in the rooms and both of them would have been alive if they had been on opiate agonist treatment um and had been discouraged to use any medication assisted treatment by their sponsors yeah and i one of them i was sponsoring and she had returned to use and everybody abandoned her and i was like no i got you like let's be buddies i'll sponsor you whatever that means um 
and she died by herself. Yeah. So isn't that effective? Hey, eh? you, uh, you, the sponsor tells them, uh, no, we don't believe that you should uh, be able to do that because it's not part of the program. And uh, if you fuck up, we're going to turn our backs on you to make sure you're nice and isolated. And the streets are awash with poison uh, because of our draconian drug laws. And uh, there you go. So is there, is there any, do you think that is discussion about opiate agonist treatment um, in monitoring or for healthcare professionals? Is that even a, is that a discussion yet? Like has, has the discussion caught up with, with the evidence? So of course not. No. <laughs> um, the BCCSU put together a document with recommendations um, around what substance use treatment for healthcare professionals should look like. And I, I was asked to read it, which I did. And then they thanked me. And then um, my very last caduceus meeting, one of the leaders like cornered me and wanted to talk about my involvement with this organization. And I was just like, I'm going to need you to step back. And we are absolutely not talking about my involvement with this organization because the yeah. last couple of months through that whole traumatic incident, um, there was a lot of harm reduction bashing. There was a lot of people like, well, what's even going on in that program? People are just using drugs everywhere in that hospital I hear. And I was just like, I actually like burst into tears and walked out of a meeting at one point because I was just like, I feel so attacked and so misunderstood and so offended that you guys can sit here and actually say this shit right to my face. Yeah. When you know how passionate I am about this and how close-minded you're being. Yeah. That's how that's I've seen meetings like that before caduceus meetings where it's vicious. It's like a a bunch of school kids to see like, uh, you know, super educated healthcare professionals gang up on uh, somebody who's having a problem and, or, or call them out in front of everybody. And, and just, I, I can't, the first one I, when I was in uh, Homewood, that was the first time I I saw one of those. And I, I I couldn't believe that, that it was real. I know. And that they think somebody has, has convinced them that that is the appropriate mechanism for moving forward with this problem. It was you- horrifying. Yeah. What I saw in that meeting at Homewood. Like I saw them on the spot urine test somebody every week. I saw them call out people's recovery. Like they, that when I had to do my like discharge plan, there was so many issues with this and that. And well, what about that? And you're just going to relapse. We'll see you next month. Yeah. Like they were actually saying these things to me. Like I didn't know these people. Mm-hmm. And, and they I, don't know I don't you. No. Um, and it, it just like the the whole like there was a lot of unrest in the hospital because people were f- being found overdosed in bathrooms and hallways, and we didn't have an OPS yet. And you know, the incident that had happened on my unit, um, one of my like my mentor was assaulted by a patient and not a person who uses drugs, but it became this narrative in the hospital that my unit was unsafe and that I Mm. had something to do with that, that I allowed people to use drugs and I allowed people to do whatever they wanted. And, um, you know, there was this, this implication that 
I had contributed to my mentor being injured. And, you know, there was emails being sent behind my back. The physician team was involved. I, it was horrible. Um, and that's, you know, eventually resulted in me going on leave, but I went on leave three days before my monitoring contract ended. And I didn't go on leave sooner because I was convinced that the monitoring company would find some way to extend my contract because yeah. I was unstable. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. And it's, it's, this is all rooted in stigma too, like in really dated, dated stigma. Yeah. It's so madness. I, I had a really good confidant in one of the OHNS leaders and she looked at me and she just said, can you, you have walked through every hoop you've put out every fire you've done every single thing that has been requested of you. And if you need to go on leave, you go on leave. I have no hesitation in supporting you um, to go and get the help that you need around all of this trauma. And, yeah. and she just said, you know, I won't even, we won't even tell them that you're going on leave. Like, it's uh, none of their business. That's awesome. It's none of their business. It yeah. isn't. Yeah. It was a leap year. So my contract ended on the 29th of February. <laughs> Every uh, second counts, man. Oh my god! Right. <laughs> um, so can I, went, I went for uh, poppy seed um, lemon French toast that morning. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I miss I miss I miss poppy seeds for sure. So, how, can how? And now this is a pretty broad question, but how have some of these things that you've learned and experienced with monitoring with Homewood? all aspects of the, of that you encountered, how has that informed you now? Clearly it has. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's informed me on, on like every single level. I mean, that trauma counseling that I did that summer, um, the summer of 2020 also involved working with an occupational therapist around assertiveness and communication. And that, changed my life. Mm. Uh, I did do some more trauma counseling. It was actually kind of disappointing, but um, I mean, it was all distance, right? Because of the pandemic, but I yeah. got to work one-on-one -on -one with an occupational therapist and, and she did all of my exposure therapy and was just so boggled by some of the ideas that I, and she was like, what? Oh, you're not bad. You're not self-centered. You're not any of these things. And you know, like, as soon as monitoring ended, I stopped going to meetings. I was like, you never yeah. um but i carried <laughs> so much of that messaging with me and had this really negative self-image and this idea that i wasn't capable of making decisions yet i'm leading a program right yeah. like, none of it lined up so i it, it informed me in a lot of ways a i understand why people don't want to go into recovery i do because yeah. i think that recovery to people who use drugs and who have experienced the traumas that they've experienced, the idea of going into a room and standing at a podium and talking all about your past is, is not safe, number one. Number two, the idea that if you relapse, you're bad is stupid. Um, and number three, that you have this like incurable disease that's, what is it that they say? It's in the parking lot doing push-ups or, you know, like... <laughs> That you're always going to be tortured 
by this drive to use drugs because you're an incomplete human. Um, who wants to do that? No, nobody. <laughs> it, it, you couldn't take more of a victim stance if you tried. Oh, you and are, trauma doesn't exist. <laughs> it's as if, uh, I mean, it's the last thing you would want to hear if that if you were in that situation, right? Basically, they're telling you it's hopeless. You have we're no, hopeless. you're hopeless. Yeah, there's no, you're just a, you've got a problem and I'm sorry, but uh, there's nothing that can be done other than you got to keep coming back here and listening to these repetitive uh, stories and uh, that's going to be your life now. And if it isn't, be able to quote that book. Yeah. The second you leave, you're dead. <laughs> that's <Exactly>. basically. <laughs> and I mean, seeing what I saw with my friends actually staying and dying mm. um, and working as a harm reduction nurse in an opioid poisoning and seeing my patients dying and seeing, you know, like I was just like, this is fucking whack. Mm. What are you people talking about? And I became known as the girl who would sponsor people on methadone. So, okay, back to the healthcare thing now. Why can't people go to work on Suboxone? I, I will never understand why they cannot. The and, original. And I, I understand that methadone is sedating. Mm -hmm. I understand that Cadian can't be properly tested for. Um, but I also understand that those medications keep people alive and actually relieve people of a lot of the chaos around their drug use. Well, the sedation and they, they like to bring up uh, cognition as a, as their excuse, but um, there, there have been challenges in court. And uh, I have a, a, I actually have a pharmacist buddy who uh, challenged that on a human rights level and won. Uh, so he's, he, yeah, he's, he's able to move forward with that. And I, um, we're starting to see more of it here, which is good. Um, I, I mean, this idea I mean, the way he looked at it, he said, well, if you think I'm impaired, then I'll do the same requirements. You give me the PEBCs and I'll, I'll do the test again with the uh, drug on board. And if I pass that, that, then will that be okay? And at that point, they just conceded. Hmm. Because that's the truth. It's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I actually have a friend that I knew from the rooms who went to nursing school on Suboxone and just didn't tell anybody and works on Suboxone. Yeah. You would never know. No. And it's none of anybody's business. Exactly. And, and I think like, I know one of the girls that I was at Homewood with, I mean, was an ER nurse and, and obviously was not going back to the ER because she was like, that's not a very safe place for me to be. And I recognize mm. that, but also I can't go back because I have to get off Spoxone and I, I can't get off Spoxone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a huge difference between people who, and I'm not saying methadone's bad. That's not what I'm saying. It's a different drug. It does a different thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. And it works really well for some people. And that's wonderful. Um, but the people that are really stable on Suboxone and on Sublicade, like, why can they not work? Yeah, there's no reason. If they there's, didn't tell you, you wouldn't know. No, yeah, the, there's no logical reason, no rational reason. And I think what will have to happen is they will have to start challenging it on an individual basis until we get enough people who have just shown that this is actually baloney. Um, and then... And then they, the standard can change, but yeah. And I think that that is what's happening now. There's, there's starting to be enough precedent so that 
when people talk, they realize, well, like for instance, say I wanted to go back on work and I wanted to uh, take Suboxone. I said, well, you got to let me do it if you're letting this guy do it. You know, like, and you get enough of that going on and enough people who are informed, all of a sudden that rule gets tossed out the window and we move forward a step. Well, and I'd really like to see, you know, I mean, I did that interview with the BCNU and, and um, because I really wanted people to know that the union will help you because they did, they helped me Yeah. Um, from day one, no questions asked. They paid for my plane tickets. They paid for my taxis. They paid for, they paid for me to go to treatment. Well, I mean, the taxpayer did, so I did, but you know, they, they did all of those things for me. Um, and that, that process for what it's worth and for the garbage that I experienced there, it did save my life. It did. I mean, maybe a, a trip, a six week trip to a sober friend's house in Toronto would have done the same thing. But when you go back to that process and what was happening in my life at that point, it saved my life. For sure. And it's not a perfect process. And, you know, there are huge issues with some of the approaches and it would really love to see the BCNU stand up for nurses who are being put through that process mm-hmm. because it's not necessary. Like that's it's not, it's, yeah. it's, it's not necessary. There are other ways to do this, which are way more personalized not trauma, like not trauma causing, um, support empowerment and decision-making and growth. Um, And I think, I hope that, you know, somebody somewhere is working on looking at how this can be addressed with the college, because it is ultimately the college that has the say. Yeah. And the BCNU reps that I talked to told me that they were like, our hands are tied. Well, they're the ones who are worried. It's always, and then it comes back to the public, right? Ultimately, they don't they don't care about you. They care about whether or not you hurt the public. Yeah. So you you know, but I mean, these are these are not problems that are difficult to solve as far as a logistics uh, angle is concerned. Not if you sure. want to solve them. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And you you can't convince me that the failure to ask the question what do you need right now is not rooted in the assumption that drug users are bad and someone with an addiction yeah. is bad. Yeah. And don't so, know what well, you need. And yeah. how could you possibly know what you need? You're, you're, you're bad. You're a screw up. We're not going to ask. So, yeah. and I think a lot of, a lot of us who have encountered it would say the same thing. So I, I guess I pose that as a question to you, Ken, and if someone had to said to you at the very beginning or or even as soon as you left Homewood and you were going to be reintegrated, so to speak, what if they had said to you, what, what do you need from us right now? Imagine, can you imagine? No. (laughs) And I can tell you exactly what I needed. Yeah. I needed to know that I was going to get proper evidence-based counseling that would address my trauma that would address Um, you know, the things that I needed in my life that would address my inability to process difficult emotions. I needed um, to know that I was financially supported and that I didn't need to stress out about that. Um, I needed somebody to help me understand the like internalized stigma and shame that I had. 
And I needed somebody to help me to understand that I could live without drowning and pushing down emotions. That, that there were real psychiatric things happening that could be treated and supported. That's what yeah. I needed. Yeah, that, that's a, a excellent summation of uh, generally, you know, what most people should. That should be the minimum, right? Like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give you this this full, you know, not uh, not an IME, but you come out and say, okay, what's you know, what do you think would be an additional appropriate treatment? And okay, let's you know we got these people set up. Let's get you going on that. Like they, when I left Homewood, they were like, "You need DBT. You need this. You need that. You need this." And I was like, "Cool." And then I got back to Vancouver, and I was like, "Oh, I can't afford any of this." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, two hundred dollars a pop to see a counselor, six hundred dollars a month or whatever it was for monitoring, um, debt um, no job. Um, you know, all of those, all of those pieces that were just so incredibly stressful and shame inducing, like, I can't, I can't do any of these things that they've told me will help me. Yeah. But do you know how much the taxpayer paid for you to go to Homewood? Oh, like 60 grand or something. Is 40 grand for yeah. their, their, uh, five week. Uh, did you say you did a six week or something? No, they wouldn't let me. Oh, okay. So you did your five week. Yeah. So, yeah. 40 grand, they get the out of province fee. Um, so if, you know, if you took that money and, exactly. and dumped it into, we have, we have facilities here in BC. There, there's excellent counselors here. There's no need to go to Homewood across country, the, on the other side of the country. They told me that I needed to, they told me that if I ended up in treatment with my patients, that it would be unprofessional. Well, this is their excuse. The other one they use is there's no facility in BC that's dedicated to healthcare professionals, which is an absolute load of shit. Well, you mean that extra hour a week? That's what they mean. <laughs> and if you, when I got back, I asked my, uh, my physician about that. And I said, uh, do you know what they mean by that uh, special program? She's like, oh, no, not really. So you don't know what it consists of. No, I just know that it's a facility that's specialized. And I'm like, okay, well, here's what it is in case somebody it's just like, it's basically a caduceus meeting with less people. That's it. Once a week. Yeah. Yeah. It it blew my mind when I got there and realized that that's Mm. all it was. Yeah. Because I, I mean, that was part of, part of my hope was that, I would yes. be able to see an angle that I hadn't seen before. Yes. But, but no, instead I get fucking thrown to, I mean, I could go to 12 step meetings. You can get that anywhere, you know, and me across the country to go to an AA meeting mm, and yeah. go bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For 40 grand. And, um, horticulture, which I actually really liked. Oh, horticulture is good. It was good. Um, but yeah, like it, 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 it's just a racket. It kind of is. Yeah. Somebody's making money off of it and I know who it is and everybody else knows who it is. It just can't be proven. Um, and the attitudes and the approaches are damaging 
and harmful and um, inappropriate. Lots of, yeah, especially the, their uh, take on a caduceus model is outrageously incorrect, in my opinion. I mean, remember, I don't, uh, I might have experience in that area, but I mean, <laughs> I could tell you, I've seen bad and I've seen good. You know, I, I run uh, caduceus meetings twice a week and have been doing so for what, since 2017. That's awesome. Yeah. And they're unlike, unlike any other caduceus meeting that's out there, probably Nathan. Maybe I'll have to do a guest visit. Oh, we would love that. Kenan. We especially just, I love when people uh, show up that have come out the other side. Uh, and it's so important for nurses to see that it can be done. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I don't have any interest in drinking and using like it doesn't even cross my mind. Like it's not, and I mean, I use cannabis here and there, mm-hmm. you know, which means I'm probably going to the seventh ring of hell, but whatever, um, <laughs> you know, I smoke a joint here and there. It's not yeah. like I'm, I don't know. And I use CBD products and I, you know, I don't use painkillers and I don't use sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use those instead. And sometimes I like to just get really high after smoking a joint and watch a funny movie Yeah, because you're allowed to enjoy your life. Well, I'm going to call Homewood immediately and okay. uh, <laughs> tell them I want the corner street again. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It can be done. And, and, and drugs are not the problem. No. Our systems are the problem. Yeah, it's, and the lack of support that we receive is the problem. And the, the support and knowledge around how to exist in this world as a healthcare provider, it, 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 there's nobody there showing you how to do it. Or how to exist as a human being in this world actually Absolutely. is, uh, I mean, yeah. there's no manual for 2022. I looked. It's just uh, blank. so done. Like I tag out. <laughs> I tag out. Like yeah. I, you know, I remember trying to do an amends to my dad. Bless oh my him. God, the poor guy. He stopped me and he's like, okay, <laughs> just, I need you to stop. And I was like, what? And he's like, can I remind you about when you won that basketball tournament in grade nine? And can I remind you about how beautifully you sang in the choral group in grade 12? And can I remind you that you were successful in obtaining a bachelor of arts degree? And can I remind you that you are a war- an award-winning nurse? And can I remind you that you have a family that loves you very much? And all of this shit is not what you should be focusing on. Did you lie to me and get money? Of course you did, but I knew you were lying to me and I still (laughs) gave it to you. Were you a total asshole sometimes? Yes, but so was I, you know, and he just like shut down. He (laughs) shut it down in a way that I kind of went, oh, this man knows me and loves me and trusts me and is like my kindred spirit on the face of this earth. And if he says this is wrong, it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I I would go to meetings because I had to, when I would visit and he'd be like, so I know your, your, your great uncle really liked going, but it was more just for like the coffee and the chat. I know know you get those guys or the 107 year old guy who uh, has been in in weekly attendance since ought two. And he tells the same story every time. 
gets yep. a little bit slower each time. And oh my God, I don't know how. <laughs> all, that, all that stuff's so stupid. Just go to meetings and don't drink. Yeah. yeah it's. Uh... And, and I do think that people need to be empowered to understand that they can decide to not drink. Yeah. Actually, it actually is imperative that you, yeah. you, you have to come to terms with what you actually want and you have to be honest about it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, there are days that I would love to fall face first into an eight ball of cocaine, but that's actually just part of the human experience is that you're going to have bad days when you want to escape. Yeah, absolutely. You want to do something that'll make you feel better and that doesn't make you bad and it doesn't make you wrong. It just makes you human. Yeah, it doesn't make you different than anyone else. Nope. Either you see, I mean, no matter what vice people use, everybody uses something to seek comfort. Yeah. It's the same mechanism, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Dopamine and serotonin, you know, it's, yeah. it's all the same mechanism. And, and, you know, I just, I don't know. I feel like when I started reading things like, um, like Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker, I don't know if you guys know that book. No. Um, Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, she talks, she's, she talks about going to her first AA meeting and how she was just like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Like, and, you know, um, founded and, and organized a, a, a sobriety company, which of course people are like, well, you have to pay for it. It is free. But she talks about the conditions in which women particularly experience addiction. And she talks about, um, you know, like, AA is a program that was created by two white men in the 30s. Yeah. Literally built on patriarchal structures. <laughs> like, yeah. how, how can you expect this to be healing or even supportive of women, particularly women who have lived in intersections of multiple forms of oppression? Yeah, you know, like it's it's just bananas. So yeah. You know, as soon as I started reading ideas and that were articulated the way she articulated them and some other people as well, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not crazy for thinking this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. They sure make you, uh, they test you though, don't they? <laughs> You're like, huh. That's your addiction talking. You know? Yeah, exactly. Relapse I'm behavior. Glad, I'm, I'm glad that I made you. You're on the relapse board. Remember the relapse board? At home, up on the wall, it was like this list of things that would mean you were like doomed to fail. Mm. Oh man, I don't know. I just there's never going to be an all or nothing solution to addiction for everybody, and I think the most important part to recognize is that ninety percent of the people that use drugs and alcohol do not have addiction issues. Thank you. Yes, that's yeah. uh, that's just the facts. Okay. Yeah. And the sooner people wrap their heads around that, uh, the sooner we can drop with the, uh, the nonsense stigmas and the pretending like, you know, we're in the Puritan. Uh, it, it's all just, it's not helpful. No. We need to get, we need to move forward. We're too far behind on this issue and it's, it's actually killing people. We're losing yep. just under seven people a day in this province. Yeah. 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 And those are all people that would benefit from safe supply and, you know, I don't know, housing. Well, safe food. supply would do it, right? I safe mean, supply would do it. That's it. It's, it's not a hard problem to fix. And you know that um, 
there are doctors sitting on a board for the Alberta UCP government right now who run monitoring programs. Yeah, well, that's a whole, uh, the conflict of interest thing is thick. That's a whole yeah. different. Uh, I had quite a reaction when I saw that list. I was like, yeah. oh, that's not surprising at all. No. It's disappointing. It's grossly a conflict of interest, but. It is. It is. And there's my mouth on that one. Yeah. Well, Kenan, thanks for approaching this conversation with us so openly and, and frankly, and with so much vulnerability. Uh, yeah. I think your story is a, is a gift to, to our listeners. Cause it, um, Oh, you just, you have a, you have a, have a different perspective and, and you did, you did the work and you survived. And so I, I want to say kudos to you for, what a bloody survivor you are. <laughs> Thank you. It's so Truly. cool. I've been, I've been given the opportunity. I speak to nursing students at Langara and I went and spoke to the faculty there. Cause I mean, there was two of us in my class that went to Homewood. Mm. <laughs> like, wow. You guys need to pay attention to this. Um, and, and we, um, you know, it's so interesting when I look back at the PowerPoint that I was using in 2018 versus the PowerPoint that I'm using now. Whoa. Yeah, you know, I um, I do feel very, very strongly about being open and honest about this story because I think it's really important that we are able to look at the processes we're using and improve them. Yeah, yeah. we both agree. That's that's actually. I mean, that's one of the primary reasons we started the podcast. We're uh, this is a this is a light, right? And uh, there's yeah. a ver- there's a darkness that runs kind of counter or underneath in a current that uh, most people aren't aware of. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I, in your bones. Yeah. It just feels so gross. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Ken, and I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. You're an excellent speaker, and uh, that was a really interesting backstory, and I'm sure that's going to help somebody. So, yeah, big, for sure. big thanks. We appreciate it. You got it. And, hey, send me your, your schedule for your caduceus, because, I mean, I would love to – just even, you know, community is important and knowing other people that are on the same sort of path, whether whatever it looks like is important. And sometimes you do just need to speak to somebody else who doesn't drink or use. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. We will do that. All right, you guys. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. (laughs) See you next time, guys. See you soon, guys. See you later.